People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And we are in conversation today with international best-selling author Sebastian Folks, the author of, among many other books, Birdsong, Charlotte Gray. And we're going to be in conversation today about his latest book, Paris Echo. Welcome, Sebastian. Hi, Stephen. It's a great, uh, it's a great, it's a great pleasure to have you on our on our radio station, and I'm really looking forward to discussing books and Paris Echo with you. It's I'm going to, to be, ask. It's good to be speaking to you. Instead of me giving an introduction to you, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms. All right. Uh, my name is Sebastian Folks. Uh, I'm an English novelist. Uh, I've published 14 novels, including the present one, um, Paris Echo, um, going back to the 1980s. Um, and before I became a novelist, I worked for a little while as a journalist for newspapers in London. Um, my books are really about um, the intensely lived private lives of people. They're quite serious, um, but they also have a little bit of humor in them from time to time, I hope. Um, they're also about the way that people's individual lives are affected by history, um, sometimes in ways they're quite unaware of, not just because their parents did such and such a thing, which everyone knows about in a big, important event, but I'm interested in the way that history has an insidious effect on the lives of people working its way through the generations. And I suppose this is really bec- uh, as a result of growing up in, uh, in England in the 60s, um, in a very nice family, very, uh, very nice, loving parents, and so on. Um, but then discovering that the world was blow- about to blow itself to pieces um, with the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. And everything one's parents say about everything is okay, it's all fine, seemed to me as I got to that sort of teenage stage of questioning that things were not fine at all. Um, how could my parents and grandparents and their generations have left us in this terrible mess with the United States and the Soviet Union poised to blow us all to pieces. And so I think a lot of the early books I wrote were trying to figure out how we got there and and what had gone wrong with the 20th century. Um, And then I think later books I wrote, most obviously a book called Human Traces, um, and my last book, um, Where My Heart Used to Beat, and another book called Engleby, we're really about what is the what is the matter with the human creature with Homo sapiens? Why why are we so damaged? Why is one in a hundred of us um, completely um, you know um, psychiatrically unwell? What went wrong with our evolution and so on? So th- these are the themes I've written about in all these books, and they sound, I dare say, quite um, heavy heavy going, maybe even. But I think the art of the novelist is to is to present these ideas in the lives of really well-imagined, well-drawn characters that the reader can identify with and, and be drawn into their lives. For, for someone who's interested in history and how history plays itself out on the intimate level within each of the characters' lives, you've actually contributed a few books that have become foundational texts for the current reading generation to get to grips with both the First World War and the Second World War. Birdsong 
and Charlotte Gray. And those books, I know in England, they 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 set works. They 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 prescribed reading for 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 young for young teenagers. And they are read in schools, yes. And um, I, I think yes, I, I've met a few young people who who have studied them, and sometimes they they're, they're grateful for it, and sometimes they accuse me of having ruined their holidays because they had to read my books when they would rather be messing about on the beach. But. Um, you know, it it is a, a great honour, of course, to have your books given that sort of place, if you like, in an established and agreed curriculum. Um, it is actually 25 years ago this week that um, Birdsong was published, and you know, when it when it came out, I had great hopes and ambitions for the book, but I didn't really expect that it would. Um, do so do so well and become such a sort of established favorite um, in this country and indeed elsewhere because what I I believe is what um, South African born playwright Ronald Harwood who is a friend of mine said the norm of life is qualified failure which I think is about right you know never nothing is ever quite as good as you think it's going to be but on the other hand it's not quite a disaster so, um, you know, in the case of Birdsong and uh, Charlotte Gray and one or two other books, I've been um, surprised, but obviously very gratified as well. Uh, it's 25 years. It's quite, uh, it's, it's quite a nice coincidence that we, we, we're in conversation yeah. with you about your book Paris Echo, the 25th year to almost to the week of, uh, of the release yeah. of Bird, the publication of Birdsong. Now, to Paris Echo comes off the page very, very strongly that you have a love, affa- a love affair with Paris. It's very strongly felt on the page. How did this relationship begin? Uh, it began when I was 17, uh, after I'd left school uh, in England, and I went to Paris for three months. We, it, it, at the age of 17, you know, I don't know about other kids, but I was certainly quite frivolous, and I wanted to go to Paris because I hoped to meet girls from you know french girls swedish girls you know whatever smoke french cigarettes hang out in cafes and so on um that's not quite how it worked out for me um i was actually quite a shy um teenager and i was pretty lonely there uh, and i also didn't have any money so i just walked around the city a lot uh, and i went to a lot of galleries i went to a lot of films um, I found a library, the American Library in Paris, where I could borrow books for very little. And I learned to speak French, and I became very fascinated by Paris. But I didn't sort of fall in love with it in the way that a lot of tourists do. I don't particularly like croissant. I don't particularly like café au lait. Uh, I was looking for something a bit sort of grittier, if you like. And over many years of visiting as a journalist or just on novel friends or children i've been sort of slightly frustrated by paris in a way um the combination of the fact that it seems so and in a way it's a be- most beautiful city much more so i should say than london um and it's although every metro station name and every street name advertises france's past every every street is named after a famous chemist or discoverer or doctor general and so on likewise all the metro stations there are aspects of paris which seem quite mysterious and quite hidden and and difficult outside to get inside Uh, and it was these aspects of it i think that have really intrigued me for a long time 
Where did you go in Paris? What are your favorite places? Before we get on to the actual book, but just uh, just yeah. someone who's walked the streets and who's got to know the place on the grittier parts well, of the city also more intimately. Um, when I went to research the book in uh, the spring of 2016, um, one of the things I wanted to do was to set the book in streets of Paris that people wouldn't uh, know about. Um, and both my main characters... One of them is, is penniless. He's a boy who's run away from his home in Morocco, so he has no money. And the other one is an American um, historical researcher. She's a postdoc at the university, and she has a you know a modest amount of money that an academic would have. But neither of these people are going to be living in a huge swanky apartment. Um, and Tarek uh, spends a lot of his time in the outside the city in a in a suburb called Saint Denis. Uh, which is full of people from Africa and the Middle East um, who live a very uh, different life from the way that most people perhaps envisage the typical Parisian. And Hannah lives uh, in the 13th arrondissement, not far from the Place d'Italie. Again, a, a part of Paris not much visited by tourists. It's full of, it has a lot of 1960s buildings, quite a few skyscrapers, um, it has a very large Chinese community, quite a lot of Vietnamese, and so on. Uh, something to look at these, um, you know, parts of the city that people wouldn't be so familiar with. Um, myself, I lived in lots of different places, hotel rooms, Airbnb, uh, and I ended up living in the ninth arrondissement um, near a street called the Rue des Martyrs, the Martyrs Street, as it were, which is a very very old-fashioned part of Paris, actually, and, and I like being there a lot. You've introduced us to your two main protagonists, Hannah, the postdoc, and Tariq, the young, the young runaway. Can you just extend our introduction to them a little bit more and then tell us the main basic line of the story, just to, just to whet all potential yeah. readers' appetites? Yes. Well, Hannah knows a lot. Um, she's been to Paris before as a junior, as an undergraduate student, where she fell in love um, rather disastrously with a Russian man, uh, something that she's never really got over. But she's a very earnest woman of impeccable liberal sympathies, uh, quite feminist, um, and she takes her work very seriously, which is to understand the lives of Parisian women living uh, under the German occupation, 1940 to 44. Um, and she represents, if you like, the informed and educated view of life and all the richness that it can give you understanding the depth of background and how everything culturally and historically connects with everything else. Uh, Tarek, by contrast, 19 years old, not at all a... Um, a keen student um, at college in Tangier in Morocco, where he comes from. He comes from a mixed background. His uh, father is Moroccan. Uh, his mother was half French and half Algerian. And Tarek has a vague idea that if he goes to Paris, he might find out something about his mother's family, which intrigues him a bit, the French side of himself. But really, he's going there to look for adventure and to get away from what he feels is a rather restricted life at home with a girlfriend who remains, keeps him at arm's length, and a father who is a bit of a bully, and a stepmother who is a bit of a bore. So the the interplay between Tarek and
Saint Hannah is really about how you live your life and whether if you are very well informed and very historically and culturally well informed, you necessarily live a richer and more worthwhile life. Or whether there's something to be said for just banging around, um, being uh, open to all experiences. And all experiences come as a bit of a surprise to you. But if you think that Charles de Gaulle is the name of the airport and you'd no idea that he'd also once been the leader of France, then, you know, life, life holds a few um, upsets for you. Um, and in the course of the story, they, it, but each of them learns a little and, and moves a little. That's the, that's the dynamic of it, I think. What I find very interesting is you're looking at Paris through the eyes of two outsiders, an American who's an academic, she's doing her postdoc studies in Paris, and a runaway from, from Morocco. And you yourself are also an outsider to Paris. You're, 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 you're British. And you're writing about this place, Paris, from the perspective of two outsiders and you're looking at a city, but you're not only looking at the modern city of, 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 of Paris, you're also looking at the history of Paris, and there's layers and layers of overlay from the name of the streets and the name of the, the metro stations to, the, to the, 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 the stories of these women who lived through um, Nazi-occupied Paris. It's another layer of Paris which it's, it's a very rich mix. And as I said, all from the view of outsiders. Uh, yes, that's right. I, uh, I didn't want to write a book about Parisian characters. Um, I think it just wasn't the book I wanted to write. Um, it would also, I think, have been very, very difficult for me to um, imagine how a you know, middle-aged or young Parisian feels going about their job. I think it would have been difficult to get an authentic note into it. But um, looking at uh, Paris from through the eyes of two outsiders, I found was easier. Obviously, I had to do some background work into Tarek's background. I went to Tangier. I talked to lots of people. I got a sense of what his home life might be like. And likewise, America, I've been to many, many times. And I, I've talked to people who work in universities and so on. So I... No, I did do some, you know, basic research into their backgrounds, but really they, both Hannah and Tarek, really only come alive in relation to Paris and what they discover there. And Hannah very deliberately sets about what you call uh, the, you know, the layers of the past. She excavates the layers of the past, and she spends a lot of time at a particular um, center where she's able to listen to tape recordings made by women in their old age recalling their experiences under the Germans, 1940 to 44. So it's a very conscious thing with, um, with Hannah. With Tarek, it's far more uh, haphazard. He, he just accidentally discovers one or two things about the relationship of France with Algeria in the past, and this piques his interest. So for the first time in his life, really, he's beginning to think about the lives of people beyond himself initially about his grandparents, his Algerian grandparents. He wonders if they'd been in Paris at such and such a time, whether they might have been caught up in this or that and so on. And so uh, their, their approach to the, the different layers of Paris is, again, uh, contrasted. 
We are in conversation with Sebastian Falks, the author of Paris Echo, the book that we are in dis- we're discussing right now. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. She's high. High FM. As Eckhart Tolle said, boredom, anger, sadness, or fear are not yours. Not personal. They're conditions of the human mind. They come and go. Nothing that comes and goes is you. Join Sue Jackson every Tuesday at 10 a.m. for Finding Human, a look at the wonder that is the human mind, right here on 101.9 High FM. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have great pleasure today to be in conversation with Sebastian Foltz, the international best-selling author. He is joining us from London, and we are discussing the book Paris Echo. Sebastian, we've spoken about the Paris part. I'd like to now turn to the Echo part. Your Paris is a place of echoes, of long-ago-lived lives that echo across the city and quite literally across the centuries. What's the idea of the echo? Um, I, I'm not the first person to um, uh, have noticed that in Paris, uh, time seems to be um, quite flexible. I mean, uh, the poet Baudelaire, writing in the mid-19th century, referred to Paris as the teeming city where daylight ghosts confront the passerby. Um, and, uh, you know, you do have a sense of uh, that when you're traveling on the Bentro now, this person sitting opposite you is just a version of the person who was there when you first came as a as a teenager or a child. And uh, the Metro itself, I think, exerts a certain sort of odd fascination. People, are their normal identity is just sort of suspended for a while there and before they go up the steps back onto the street and resume their, their day-to-day life. But it is a city where it's really up to you how alert you are to um, the ghosts of the past, how much work you're prepared to do, how open-minded you're prepared to be. But I think it is also something, of course, to do with the architecture and design of the city, which was basically rebuilt in the 1870s. Um, So really all the streets and all the buildings, I mean, not all of them, but the, the large majority look similar because they're all laid out on the same design by Hausmann, who um, was the um, designer um, of, of, of the rebuilt Paris. Uh, so this, I think, also adds a layer of slight sort of mystery. If everyone's living in identical buildings, you know, what, what do these identical buildings hide? In what ways are they actually different? Uh, and Tarek wanders around thinking what these buildings look really designed to do is to, is to keep secrets and behind the uniformity of the buildings there must be drop. There are a number of historical themes that you keep bringing to the fore. We've mentioned the, the, the oral testimonies of women who lived through the, nine, the early 1940s. And you also make repeated mention in the book of the deportation of Paris's Jews during World War II. Uh, this is something which... Um, both of them uh, are aware of, both um, Hannah through her historical researches, and Tarek sort of stumbles across it 
uh, really by uh, by chance, and he pays a visit off his own bat towards the end of the book to Drancy, which is this sort of um, suburb of northern Paris where a half-built public housing project was used as a holding place uh, for Jewish people um, who were going to be taken out of Paris and taken on the railways to Auschwitz. Um, this took place between 1942 and 1944, Drancy initially under French control and then under German control. And this is, you know, a part of French history which remains, I suppose, controversial. Um, for a long time it was denied that this had happened at all, that France had been complicit in any way with um, Nazi plans. Um, but that was proved to be untrue. Um, a very fine uh, Romanian Jewish uh, lawyer called Serge Klausfeld was able to name um, 75,000 uh, people who'd been put on these transports. So at that point, um, some admission was forthcoming. But it, it remains a, a very difficult topic. And it's, it's difficult for me to talk about it without sounding as though I'm being accusing of, of France in, in some way, which I really don't want to be. Um, you know, it's all right for us in Britain. We were not occupied um, by the Nazis. Uh, and also, younger French historians have pointed out that, all right, this is a very inglorious part of France's history. But as a matter of fact, uh, France uh, exported fewer people to their death than almost any other occupied country in Europe. And, you know, it is time now to um, acknowledge and remember and pay respects and, and move on. So it's a, it's a complicated thing and not something I wish to sort of rake over, but it's, it's something that both the characters in this book sort of stub their toe on, if you like. And, and then from the darkest chapters of 20th century history, you move into Paris of the 21st century and you engage with the Arab and the African people who are living in Paris and Saint-Denis or wherever else they are, they are alive to the city around them, but you also describe the sad faces of the people who miss Africa or the second-generation Parisian Arabs who never venture beyond Saint-Denis. Who are these people? Because they're also part of your Paris echo. Um, it's... Uh it's something fairly obvious if you go to Paris, um, uh, which is, again, different from this country where large numbers of immigrants arriving from former parts of the British Empire, notably the West Indies uh, and the Far East, Bengal, Kashmir, India, Pakistan, when they arrived uh, in this country, I mean, immigration in this country, going back into the 19th century, the East End of, of London, Jewish immigration, Russian immigration, uh, East East European and so on, these people have traditionally started their lives in the middle of cities, um, in poor areas, of course, but in the middle of cities where industry has failed or moved on. Um, and then as they've uh, prospered after one or two generations, they've tended to move to the suburbs and then out to make their lives in the places of their choosing. Um, by um, Really just by accident, uh, in France, the cities... Are, tend to be more compact. They tend to be within walls with gates. Um, and the big building projects in France took place after the Second World War um, in the suburbs outside the city. And these places were designed with, with full hope and idealism in places that um, 
young young French people would go to live and have their first home and then move on. But this was the housing stock available um, after Algeria, after Indochina, after various episodes in French colonial history. So it happened that most of the large number of immigrants going to France were housed outside the city walls. This was at no point a plan, um, but it, it, it has a slightly unfortunate symbolism of people living and sort of peering over the fence into the heart of the city where they, they can't go. Of course, they can go, and, and, and plenty do. I don't want to, want to exaggerate, but there is this sort of slight symbolism of the banlieue, uh, the, the suburbs, uh, people wanting to come more and more inside, but not really daring in some ways to venture in in case they're made to feel unwelcome. I think, incidentally, that, that this is changing quite rapidly. And funnily enough, one of the ways in which it's changing, I think, is, is Uber, the taxi firm. A lot of people, a lot of people who live in the suburbs have found work driving cars, and they zoom up and down the Champs-Élysées uh, quite happily. The, the, the city that you've described so far is a very, very multi-textured city with... Uh, Layers of history and a city that's been rebuilt in the 18s in the in the 1870s, then with the different population waves coming and going and settling different places, it's a very very complicated city. But it's a city that you've you've you, you you've set this novel in where you've got conversations between two outsiders about. A, a simple laugh where you just live it, or a laugh that's based on a lot of research, you know, behind everything that you're going to interact with, and then with this young Tariq, this young man who's t- totally unaware of this city that is this metropolis that he's walking through, and with all this, with all with all the facets of the city the past and the present and all the different people you've you you you've you've given on the page of your book a laugh to a, a very very complicated but breathing modern city that's the more you talk the more the book can you know after i've finished reading it takes on a laugh a great the city takes on a greater laugh through the book all in its own right and that brings me to the next point that i want to ask you about even though it's just a part of the setting for the book, the Paris Metro becomes a very important part of the way Tariq and Hannah relate to the, 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 the actual built city around them. Yes, the, the, well, the Metro, um, although, let's just say about Tariq, although it's true that he's very ignorant um, culturally and historically, he's been educated in the way that um, this his generation is, which is to say, without reading nearly as many books as people of my generation would have been made to read, and without being made to capture and learn facts in the same way that we were made to do so, because you can capture all the facts that you need are on your mobile phone at the touch of a finger. But although he's uninformed, he's not actually stupid, Tarek. Um, and he's quite light on his feet, and his judgment about people is not bad and gets better as the book goes on. And there's something in his guileless, naive way of living which makes him actually uh, open to experience. And the question is what he's going to do with it. Um, And the metro, as you say, I mean, every chapter is named after a metro station which is visited in the course of that book. And the metro is um, a great system. And uh, it's, 
it, it becomes a place where the past and the present meet in the minds of the of the two main characters when they see people uh, sitting opposite them, reading a book, looking at their mobile phone screens. They imagine that they might what they were doing, what such a woman might have been doing during the German occupation, or are they ghosts? Are they people who've been here before? Have we all been there before? And so on and so forth. And there is a slight sort of sense of time being uh, quite flexible. And so that's that's the sort of function of the Metro, as well as, of course, getting you from A to B in, uh, rather rapidly. We're in conversation with Sebastian Falks, the international best-selling author, who's joining us from London. We'll be back with a few more questions straight after this ad break. This is one People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Sebastian Falks. The book they'll be discussing is Paris Echo. It's just been published in the UK and here in South Africa. And if you've been listening to our show, you'll know some of the main themes that we've been discussing from the book. Now that we've discussed the book, Sebastian, I'd like to ask you, what do you do when you finish writing a novel? What books do you read? Who, who, which authors and what genres? Um, I, the answer is always, uh, it's a very difficult question, I found out, because there's no, so many of the books I uh, read are connected with the book that I myself am writing, their, their background, uh, their history books, their books for Paris Echo I read about, about the periods the book talks about. Um, but what I suppose I try to do is catch up with um with books that have come out in the two years that I've been writing my own book. And uh, there's my wife works in a bookshop. She's usually pretty good at um, seeing things my way and saying, everyone likes this one, try this. And so I, I do a bit of a crash course to catch up with um, what's been coming out. Do, do you find it's important to keep up with what's coming out? Uh, I do for sort of conversational reasons, yes. Um, and... You know, I, I don't want to be left out of a conversation. Everyone's talking about the new book by X, and I said, oh, God, I've just been reading about Second World War history. I haven't read the new book by X. Um, and, you know, I, w- I want to see if there's anything I can learn. Reading, for me, is always a kind of learning experience, and there's a book here. Everyone says this is great. I look at it and think, hmm, can I... Is there something I can borrow from this? Something I can steal from this, really? Some technique, some clever little thing here or there? Or... Just some idea, actually quite often it's books I'm disappointed by that give me ideas. I look at something and I think, oh gosh, this is this hasn't worked at all. The editor should have told the writer to do it this way. And if that character had been a man instead of a woman, then hey, that would have been really interesting. And, you know, that can fire up a little idea for you sometimes. And are you currently working on anything new? Um, I'm about to write a play, um, which I've never done before, which I probably will find much more difficult than I'm expecting. Uh, but it, it's, not, it's going to be quite a short play, and it won't take me very long to do. So if it's no good, I won't have wasted a lot of time. And then, in, I hope, in, before the end of the year anyway, um, I will get down to writing another novel. And that's a whole new process that's going to start from fresh, and then you'll hopefully be in conversation with us in two years' time to discuss the themes from the latest Sebastian yeah. Falks novel. I look forward to it very much. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for the book, Paris Echo. It's been, for me, a a wonderful read, dipping back into a city that I've visited in the past, that I've I've found 
so many questions behind closed doors and behind high walls. And that's the same idea that you've expressed repeatedly in the book, that there are all these secrets and there's these echoes. And we walk the streets, but how much access do we gain to the actual city? Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Here's a community announcement from Prudential Investment Managers for you. A strong community is one of life's greatest assets. When considering your financial assets, always look for a manager who can deliver consistently. As for you and your family, enter the new year with all all of us at Prudential Investment Managers, and we wish you good health, financial security, and peace of mind. Contact Prudential Investment Managers via our website. That's www.prudential.co.za. Consistency is the only currency that matters. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've just finished our interview with Sebastian Folks. Very, very interesting interview, seeing the whole, the whole author, the way that he structured his book, Paris Echo, and this uh, during this week, which is the 25th anniversary since the publication of his most famous book, Birdsong, which is a World War I novel. We have a full show for the rest of this hour, and we also have full shows in the coming up weeks. Next week, we'll be in conversation with South African author Craig Higginson to discuss his new book, The White Room. And looking into the future, we have Richard Pierce, a activist, an environmental activist, coming into the studio at the beginning of October to discuss his book about canned lion hunts and uh, and uh, the lion industry. His book is called Cuddle Me, Kill Me. And we also have, uh, I'm trying to work on a number of other interviews as well to get some of the best international and some of the best local authors into the studio, either in person or over the telephone line, so that we can bring our passion for books to you, to our listeners. One of the big areas of growth in publishing at the current moment, are books about President Trump. Uh, the the biggest book in this genre was just released this week in America by Bob Woodward, and it's called Fear. The book has sold over 750,000 copies in the United States in its first one and a half days since it was published. Also, just this week from Macmillan Publishers, uh, uh, a press release came out that Stormy Daniels, one of the people who in America have written a book, which is going to be released the beginning of October, about a scandalous relationship that she had with the president. It's also going to be published. And I've got another book in my hand right now. It's called The House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia. It's by Craig Unger. He is the best-selling author of House of Bush, House of Saad. This book tells the story of one of the greatest intelligence operations in history, a campaign by Russian operatives years in the making, ending with either a willfully ignorant or an explicably unaware Russian asset in the White House. 
as the most powerful man on earth. It's published by Bantam Press, and it has already been released to quite a degree of fanfare in America and around the world. This book tells the story of one of the greatest intelligence operations in history, an undertaking decades in the making through which the Russian mafia and Russian intelligence operatives successfully targeted, compromised and implanted either a willfully ignorant or an explicably unaware Russian asset in the White House as the most powerful man on earth. In doing so, without firing a shot, the Russians helped put in power a man who would immediately begin to undermine the Western alliance, which has been the foundation of American national security for more than 70 years, who would start massive trade wars with America's long-time allies, fuel right-wing anti-immigrant populism, and assault the rule of law in the United States. In short, at a time at which the United States was confronted with a new form of warfare, hybrid war consisting of cyber warfare, hacking, disinformation, and the like, the United States would have at its helm a man who would leave the country all but defenseless and otherwise inadvertently do the bidding of the Kremlin. It is a story that is difficult to tell, even though, in many ways, Donald Trump's ties to Russia over the last four decades have been an open secret, hiding in plain sight. The reason they went largely unnoticed for so long may be that aspects of them are so unsettling, so transgressive, that Americans are loath to acknowledge the dark reality staring them in the face. But, as this book will show, over the last four decades, President Donald Trump and his associates have had significant ties to at least 59 people who facilitated business between Trump and the Russians, including relationships with dozens who have alleged ties to the Russian mafia. We're discussing a book called House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia by Craig Ungar. The book will also show that President Trump has allowed Trump-branded real estate to be used as a vehicle that most likely served to launder enormous amounts of money, perhaps billions of dollars, for the Russian mafia for more than three decades. It will show that President Trump provided an operational home for oligarchs close to the Kremlin and some of the most powerful figures in the Russian mafia in Trump Tower, his personal and professional home, the crown jewel of his real estate empire and other Trump buildings on and off for much of that period. It will show that during this period, the Russian mafia has likely been a de facto state actor serving the Russian Federation in much the same way that American intelligence service services serve the United States, and that many of the people connected to Trump had strong ties to the Russian FSB, the state security service that is the successor to the feared KGB. The book will also show that President Trump has been a person of interest to Soviet and Russian intelligence for more than 40 years and was likely the subject of one or more operations that produced compromat, compromising materials on him regarding sexual activities. It will also show that for decades Russian operatives, including key figures in the Russian mafia, studiously examined the weak spots in America's pay-for-play political culture, from gasoline distribution to Wall Street, from campaign finance to how the K Street lobbyists of Washington ply their trade, and, having done so, hired powerful white shoe lawyers, lobbyists, accountants, 
and real estate developers by the score in an effort to compromise America's electoral system, legal process, and financial institutions. The book is House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia by Craig Ungar. We'll be back with more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we are moving from a book about pre- uh, President Trump to two books with a technology theme. One of the big topics in technology at the moment is AR, artificial intelligence, and the fears about where artificial intelligence are going. The, one of the big books at the moment on this theme is the new book by Yuval Noah Harari, which is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And one of his central themes is that biotechnology is becoming so powerful that we will be able in the short-term future to manipulate human bodies and give humans superhuman strengths and characteristics. That's where biotechnology is going to lead to an upgrade in the human species. The other main theme is artificial intelligence. And if you put the two together, you get quite a scary future for mankind. We'll be discussing some of the themes from that book, that's Yuval Noah Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, in a a show in the next few weeks. But slightly more positive and a lot more palatable is a book called AIQ, How People and Machines Are Smarter Together. And it's written by two university lecturers and researchers, Nick Paulson and James Scott. There comes a time in the life of a subject when someone steps up and writes the book about it. ARQ explores the fascinating history of the ideas that drive the technologies of the future, artificial intelligence, and demystifies the core concepts behind it. The result is a positive and entertaining look at the great potential unlocked by marrying human creativity with powerful machines. So that's the basic premise of ARQ. In the introduction, the two authors tell us who they are and what they want to achieve with this book. We teach data science to hundreds of students per year, and they're all fascinated by artificial intelligence, and they ask great questions. How does a car learn to drive itself? How does Alexa understand what I'm saying? How does Spotify pick such good playlists for me? How does Facebook recognize my friends in the photos I upload? These students realize that AI isn't some sci-fi droid from the future. It's right here, right now, and it's changing the world one smartphone at a time. They all want to understand it, and they all want to be part of it. And our students aren't the only ones enthusiastic about artificial intelligence. They joined in the exaltation by the world's largest companies, from Amazon, Facebook, and Google in America to Beidou, Tencent, and Alibaba in China. As you may have heard, these big tech firms are waging an expensive global arms race for AR talent, which they judge to be essential for their future. For years, we've seen them court freshly minted PhDs with offers of $300,000 plus salaries and much better coffee than we have in academia. 
Now we're seeing many more companies jump into the AI recruiting fray. Firms sitting on piles of data in, say, insurance or the oil business who are coming along with whopping salary offers and fancy espresso machines of their own. Yet while this arms race is real, we think there's a much more powerful trend at work in AR today, a trend of diffusion and dissemination rather than concentration. Yes, every big tech company is trying to hoard math and coding talent, but at the same time, the underlying technologies and ideas behind artificial intelligence are spreading with extraordinary speed to smaller companies, to other parts of the economy, to hobbyists and coders and scientists and researchers everywhere in the world. That democratizing trend, more than anything else, is what has our students today so excited as they contemplate a vast range of problems practically begging for good artificial intelligence solutions. We're reading from the introduction to Nick Paulson and James Scott's ARQ, How People and Machines Are Smarter Together. Who would have thought, for example, that a bunch of undergraduates would get so excited about the mathematics of cucumbers. Well, they did, when they heard about Makoto Koiki, a car engineer from Japan, whose parents own a cucumber farm. Cucumbers in Japan come in a dizzying variety of sizes, shapes, colors, and degrees of prickliness. And based on these visual features, they must be separated into nine different classes that command different price, market prices. Koiki's mother used to spend eight hours per day sorting cucumbers by hand, but then Koiki realized that he could use a piece of open-source artificial intelligence software from Google called TensorFlow to accomplish the same task by coding up a deep learning algorithm that would classify a cucumber based on a photograph. Koki had never used artificial intelligence or TensorFlow before, but with all the free resources out there, he didn't find it hard to teach himself how. When a video of his AR-powered sorting machine hit YouTube, Koki became an international deep-learning cucumber celebrity. It wasn't merely that he had given people a feel-good story, saving his mother from hours of drudgery. He'd also sent an inspiring message to students and coders across the world that if artificial intelligence can solve problems in cucumber farming, it can solve problems just about anywhere. The message is now spreading quickly. Doctors are now using AR to diagnose and treat cancer. Electrical companies use AR to improve power generating efficiency. Investors use it to manage financial risk. Oil companies use it to improve safety on deep sea, re on deep sea rigs. Law enforcement agencies use it to hunt terrorists. Scientists use AR to make new discoveries in astronomy or physics or neuroscience. Companies, researchers, and hobbyists everywhere are using AI in thousands of different ways, whether to sniff for gas leaks, mine iron, predict disease outbreaks, save honeybees from extinction, or, gen or quantify gender bias in Hollywood films. And this is just the beginning. We see the real story of artificial intelligence as the story of this diffusion. From a handful of core maths concepts stretching back decades or even centuries to the supercomputers and talking, thinking, cucumber sorting machines of today, to the new and ubiquitous digital wonders of tomorrow. Our goal in this book is to tell you that story. It is partly a story of technology, but it is mainly a story of ideas. 
and of the people behind those ideas, people from a much earlier age, people who were just keeping their heads down and solving their own problems involving maths and data, and who had no clue about the role their solutions would come to play in inventing the modern world. By the end of that story, you'll understand what artificial intelligence is, where it came from, how it works, and why it matters in your life. The book is ARQ, How How People and Machines Are Smarter Together, by Nick Paulson and James Scott, and it's published by Bantam Press. The other book that I wanted to talk about with technology is a book called Connect, and it's written by Julian Goff, published by Picador. And it's a novel about an awkward teenage boy who gains superhuman abilities in a very excitable story about family and digital life set in the near future. We'll connect with the book Connect straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're looking at a book called Connect by Julian Goff. The book is published by Macmillan. We are in Nevada in the near future, and there's a family in crisis. Biologist and single mother Naomi is worried about the impact her groundbreaking research might have on the world, and of the impact the world might have on her painfully awkward, homeschooled, ever-growing teenage son, Colt. Colt is so brilliant, he can code virtual realities our world hasn't even thought of yet, and so socially inept that he struggles to order takeaway pizza. After his first real-life romantic encounter goes badly wrong, he realizes mastery of a virtual existence may not be enough. When Colt secretly sends his mother's breakthrough research paper to a biotech conference in New York, and the conference is then closed down, name his worst fears come true. Colt's father crashes back into their lives, backed by the secretive security organization he heads. The U.S. government wants Naomi's research and they want Colt. Colt will soon have to leave the comfort of his virtual reality world and face the challenges of discovering who he really is. And Naomi will have to decide how far she will go to protect her child. Would she kill a man? Would she destroy the world? From one of the most original voices in Irish writing, Connect is a thrillingly smart novel of ideas that explores what connection, both human and otherwise, might be in a digital age. It's also a story of mothers and sons, but also about you, your phone, and the future. That's the book Connect. We're looking at hybrid or cyborg people almost, people who are enhanced by technology, this biotechnology revolution that Yuval Noah Harari talks about so much, how it's going to change us and how we will connect with other people in the future. So those are two books about technology, ARQ, How People and Machines Are Smarter Together, and then Connect, a novel of big ideas and connection in the digital age, set in the slight future, and we're looking at enhanced human bodies, enhanced through technology. And this is something that's really keeping a lot of novelists really busy at their at their computers. The possibilities of the changing nature of humanity because of the unbelievable possibilities that technology will open up to us. The next two books we're going slightly around the world. The first one to China for a satire. The author 
is Yan Lianka, and he is one of the most important writers in China today. Tipped for the Nobel Prize, but he hasn't won it yet. He's the winner of the Franks, the Franz Kafka Prize. He's twice been shortlisted for the Man Book International Prize and for many other literary awards from around the world. The book is called The Day the Sun Died. One dusk in early June, 14-year-old Li Nian Yan notices that something strange is going on in his town. As the residents would usually be settling down for the night, instead they, are, they start appearing in the streets and the fields. There are people everywhere. Li Nian Yan realizes everyone is dreamwalking, carrying on with their daily business as if the sun hadn't already gone down. And before too long in the black of night, all hell breaks loose. The day the sun died sets chaos and darkness against the sunny optimism of the Chinese dream, promoted by President Xi Jinping. We are thrown into the middle of an increasingly strange and troubling waking nightmare as Li Nian Yan and his father struggle to save the town and persuade the benef- and, and persuade the beneficent sun to rise again. The book is set in contemporary China. It was written in, it was released in China in 2015. It's now been translated into English. Lian Lian Ka puts himself, inserts himself as a character in his own novels. Just give it a little bit more of a postmodern twist. And then the last book I want to mention today is called There, There. It's published by Harville Seconds, written by Tommy Orange. Tommy Orange is an American Indian writer and a Native American Indian writer. And this book has arrived on our shores, garlanded, garlanded, garlanded in uh, great praise from the American and the, uh, the international literary establishment. Jackie Redfeather and her sister Opal grew up together, relying on each other during their unsettled childhood. As adults, they were driven apart, but Jackie is newly sober and trying to make it back to the family she left behind. That's why she is there. Dean is there because he has been collecting stories to honor his uncle's death. Edwin is looking for his true father. Opal came to watch her boy Orville dance. All of them are connected by bonds that may not, they may not yet understand. All of them are there for the celebration that is the big Oakland powwow. But Tony Lohman is also there, and Tony has come to the powwow with dark intentions. This book is funny, fierce, and groundbreaking. There there is a multi-generational, relentlessly paced story about violence and recovery, hope and loss, identity and power. This is a strikingly glorious debut, and it really puts Native American authors on the map. Author is Tommy Orange. The book is there, there. And that's all the time, all the books that we have time for today. We'll be back here with you, people of the book, next week, Friday. Until then, Gmachasimatova, Kutchabas, and keep reading.